We are back in Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, our study of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 7. We have an ambitious task this morning to cover many verses compared to the pace we've been going, so we'll see how we do. Let me begin by reading the text. Uh, We'll be looking at verses 18 to 35, verses 18 to 35, Luke chapter 7. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say... He has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the word of the living God. John Bunyan uh, is most known for writing the Pilgrim's Progress. We've mentioned that a number of times. And he wrote that book, which is one of the greatest selling books in the English language. He wrote that book while he was in prison. Uh, He um, was in prison there uh, during the the time of the Puritans, and he was unwilling to to stop preaching in his church. And uh, so he writes this book about the story of Christian, an allegory of the Christian life. And Christian is the main character making his journey to the celestial city. And uh, while John Bunyan is in prison, he writes 
about Christian at one point in the story uh, being in a prison. He's in Doubting Castle. Uh, they are captured, Christian and faithful, in Doubting Castle by this, this giant named Giant Despair. And they become discouraged and doubting uh, during that time. And they remain in Doubting Castle until Christian remembers that he has a key. Uh, and it is the key of promise. And it's in, it, it's in his bosom. And he pulls it out. Oh, I've forgotten all this time that I had the key of promise, which unlocks uh, the, the, the doors to Doubting Castle. And he pulls it out and he tries it and it opens and he tries it again. It opens and they're able to escape as giant despair and his, his weird wife, you know, chase him uh, and, and they get out. Well, this morning in our passage, uh, John the Baptist finds himself in prison as well. And he is in a, his own sort of doubting castle. And this leads him then to ask a question about the Messiah and it seems so strange to us that of all people, John the Baptist would be asking for clarification about the Messiah. And yet that's what we have here. Uh, somewhat of a doubt in the, the mind of John the Baptist. What do you do in such times when doubt arises in your heart? What does John do? He does the best thing that anyone could do. He goes to Jesus. Now, of course, he can't go because he's in prison, but he sends messengers to Jesus to find out and ask his questions. And the passage that we have before us is focused on the most important question of all, the most important question for all of us. It is really who is Jesus or who is the Messiah and is Jesus the Messiah? That is the essence of the question John is asking, and it is also what the people are responding to in the rest of the passage, whether they believe that Jesus is the Messiah or not, and whether they've responded to that message. And now, doubts are not the same as unbelief. Uh, we don't want to have doubts. We shouldn't seek to have doubts. Uh, I think it was MacArthur who said, uh, we might begin with doubts. We don't want to end with doubts. <laughs> and uh, I think that's a good word. Uh, Warren Wearsby, an old preacher, uh, um, he had a, a good quote, I thought about doubt and unbelief that um, I put before you. He says, quote, doubt is a matter of the mind. We cannot understand what God is doing or why he is doing it. Unbelief is a matter of the will. We refuse to believe God's word and obey what he tells us to do. We're actually going to see a contrast in the difference between doubt and unbelief in this passage because John is expressing some doubts. He's, he's wanting reassurance, we might say, confirmation of what he does believe. Whereas at the end of the passage, we're going to see outright unbelief of those who no matter what standard is uh, that they have, it cannot be met. No matter, uh, they want to be the ones who determine how God is going to function and act. And no matter what he does, they will not believe. And that's what we see at the end of the passage. We see these dichotomies between uh, a believer having struggles and doubts with unbelievers who will not believe no matter what. That's what we see in this passage. Now, like I said, it is astonishing that it would be John the Baptist of all people who would be raising these questions. And yet, in a way, that serves to show the authenticity of the New Testament. I mean, 
This is something you would certainly want to airbrush. This is not good PR for Jesus, especially as he's teaching. And here comes John the Baptist, who a lot of these people are following Jesus because of John the Baptist's ministry. And two of his disciples come up and say, are you the Messiah? And uh, hey, you know, quiet. Uh, we don't know exactly you know, what that context was like until they brought these questions. But it's also amazing that after the, the disciples of John bring this question to Jesus and he does these miracles and answers the question, he then goes on to defend John. So sometimes we know in history, you know, the, the person who had a great career in sports or in something else, and then they, they made one error or mistake, and like that's what they're remembered for, for the rest of their career. They had this one thing, and that's certainly not what Jesus wants us to remember John for, but rather that he is truly the greatest born of women up to that point in history. So lots going on in this passage. And we want to look at it and see uh, lessons on dealing with doubts, but also with who Jesus is and how this passage in multiple ways shows us that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. So let's begin and look at verses 18 to 23. Uh, and, and let me just point out a structural matter um, you'll notice there's three sections in the verses we read. 18 to 23 are one section where John sends his messengers, Jesus answers, uh, and then it ends with this kind of like proverbial statement in verse 23. And then verse 24 to verse 30 are another section, and it's G- John, or sorry, it's Jesus defending John's ministry, and it ends with a, another kind of Uh, not exactly ends, but it has this other kind of big proverbial statement that uh, no one is greater than John uh, except those who are greater than John, (laughs) really is what Jesus is saying in verse 28. And then you have verses 31 to 35, which is our last section, and it deals with the present generation and what they are like. Uh, It's actually called the parable of the brats. People, not like it's not in the Bible, but that's what like commentators call it because he's talking about kids and he's like, this generation is like a bunch of childish kids. They're like a bunch of brats. <laughs> so they call it the parable of the brats. So pretty cool. Um, anyway, uh, and it ends with a kind of a proverbial statement again in verse 35, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And so we're going we're gonna to follow that, uh, that structural um, indicators for our three points here. So notice first, verses 18 to 23, and we'll call this perplexity at the role of Jesus. Perplexity at the role of Jesus. John is confused. He's perplexed. He's, this is strange to him what he's seeing. Notice first the confusion in verses 18 to 19. Look at verse 18 again. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. You think, what things? Well, the things that Jesus just did, right? So we looked at the beginning of chapter 7, and first he heals the, the servant of a centurion who's near death. And then he goes to Nain and brings back to life a, a man who had died and gives him back to his widowed mother. And so these things, and no doubt it probably encompasses more uh, of the miracles Jesus did, but these are the immediate things that are being reported to John. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, Luke doesn't tell us where John is at this point and why he doesn't come himself. But if you just think, like, where do we last leave John, right? Where do we leave John the Baptist 
last in the Gospel of Luke? And the answer is in jail. (laughs) Uh, That's what Luke told us in chapter 3, verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And so there's where John is left by Luke. And then now he picks back up on John. John is still in prison. Now, Matthew, in his account, Matthew 11, he tells us that John was in prison, but Luke doesn't need to because he's already left him there. This was uh, like a restored fortress that was east of the Dead Sea where John is being held by Herod. And so he has to send messengers and uh, he sends them uh, in light of what he's hearing. They're bringing him messages about, you know, the headlines of what Jesus is doing. And so he has a question. And so he sends these two disciples uh, to them. It's interesting and, and significant that he sends two disciples because Deuteronomy 17 talks about how every matter shall be established on the basis of two or three witnesses. And if we're thinking about the context here, the issue is, is Jesus really the Messiah? And so he's going to send two messengers to confirm, and they're going to see things that Jesus does, signs that he does, as well as scripture that he points to, to confirm that very reality. And remember, John, or sorry, Luke is in the process of showing us the identity of Jesus in this section. And so these two or three witnesses are important for his purposes. And so he sends these two and they ask him, are you the one to come or shall we look for another? And what does he mean by the one to come? This is really a messianic title. It's a specific title. John has even used it of Jesus in his preaching, that this is the one who is to come. And the Old Testament speaks of the Messiah this way as well. Uh, He is this particular individual who is going to come. So why would John be asking this question? Why would he be asking this question? Well, maybe we could see two main reasons that John is asking this question. Because of his present experience and because of unmet expectations. His present experience is jail. He's in jail. This doesn't seem to be what John expected when the Messiah came and brought the kingdom. John has been preparing people for the Messiah. He has identified Jesus as the Messiah. And yet now he's perplexed about Jesus as he sits in jail. He's also struggling because of unmet expectations about what the Messiah would do, which is related to him being in jail. And he doesn't seem to know how to reconcile what he knows about Messiah when he comes and what Jesus is presently doing. In other words, John has a bunch of dots you know, that he's trying to connect from the Old Testament. He's very aware of the Old Testament scriptures, but he just can't see how they all fit together with what Jesus is doing right now. He's perplexed about Jesus. And there's confusion. He has doubts and he needs reassurance. That's the issue. He's, he's seeking. So John is not, some, some want to get John off the hook and say, well, John is really asking for his disciples' sake. He's sending his disciples so that they have assurance. And, uh, Um, you're like, it doesn't seem like that's what's happening. It seems like John is really struggling here, but it's not unbelief here either. He believes Jesus, but he's, he's going, help me understand what, how does this work out? Uh, Phil Johnson helpfully put this. He said, this is faith seeking assurance. 
right? Faith seeking assurance. He believes, but he's like, help me understand. Let me put these things together. I, I, I liked what Daryl Bach said in his commentary. He said, John was seeking confirmation of Jesus's ministry. Jesus' messianic style has raised questions about him. He is thus seeking to be reassured about Jesus. In that sense, he is representative of a reader like Theophilus, who also needs assurance. I thought that was a good observation to keep the whole context of Luke in mind, because Luke 1, verses 1 to 4, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who, were from, the, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so John is looking for certainty about the Messiah. And so what does John do? He seeks Jesus out. So what about Jesus's ministry and style is causing John perplexity? Well, he has personal suffering. That's often the cause of doubt, right? Just for all of us, he's in prison and, and personal trial, personal suffering causes us to go, God, why is this happening? What, what's going on? Aren't you on your throne? I mean, these questions, aren't you for me? Why, why is this happening? And so certainly there's some of that for John, but then his expectations and them not being met about the Messiah would also lead into this. He, he knew the Messiah would be king. He knew the Messiah would deal with Israel's enemies. In fact, even in Luke chapter one, verse 71 this is Zechariah's prophecy where he, he says uh, in verse 71 that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. You know, one, of the, um, one of the pet peeves of mine is you'll hear this a lot. Uh, at least I do. I mean, I listen to a lot of sermons. But um, when people say, oh, yeah, when Jesus came, everyone was expecting Jesus to be a, a, a king and to drive out the Romans and to... Um, uh, to, to set up uh, to, or to have a political kingdom. And, and, and they make it sound like, like that's not at all what the Old Testament was saying. Uh, that is exactly what the Old Testament was saying, that the Messiah would be king, that he would come, that he would reign on David's throne, that he would de deal with all of his enemies, like physical enemies. He would drive them out. He would be the king, the only king on the earth, and he would restore Israel, and it would have benefit for all of the other nations. And so it's a very tangible, horizontal effect upon the creation the problem, though, is that if that was your only understanding of what Messiah would do and you miss the vertical aspect of what Messiah would do. So when I say horizontal, I mean like effects upon the creation and changing governments and things like that. Uh, in order for that to happen first, Messiah has to deal with the vertical problem between you and God, between your sin uh, and God. And so Messiah comes the first time to deal with those issues primarily so that he can bring these horizontal effects and begin those effects. And so, so this, is, this is the issue for John. Uh, because, I don't know, I would venture to say many, if not most, of the Old Testament prophecies about Messiah when he comes are related to things that, in our perspective, we would say happen at the second coming. Uh, and, and there's maybe less explicit when it comes to the suffering of Messiah. So you have like Psalm 22, you have Isaiah 53, you have other things set, setting up for that. Deuteronomy 21, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree and all these different things that are building up for that. But if 
the, if the world you live in, the culture you live in is primarily focused upon this aspect of Messiah just kicking out the Romans and reigning, then when he's, when he's not doing that and he's just healing people and he's dealing with forgiveness of sins, you start to go, well, when does the other part happen? When is he going to do that? And that's what John, I think, is struggling with here. He's not judging the wicked yet. And that's what John was preaching, that he was going to judge the wicked. And so you go, wait, how does this work out? And that's where he is struggling. It's the issue for John was that he lacked clarity on how all the pieces fit together. Now, for us, we look back and we go, well, what, what's the deal? Because we have hindsight, right? We, we see how it all fits together. You think about it like this. One of my preaching professors put it this way, and this is a good way to think about it. Uh, Old Testament prophecies are kind of like the sights on a gun. Right. When you're going to shoot something, you line up the sights and it looks like the sights are like on top of each other. They look like they're right there, right on top of each other. And and you can line it up. If you were to put the gun on the wall and look at it, you can clearly tell that the sights are separated by a distance, uh, much greater distance than what it appears when you line up the sights. Now, the Old Testament prophecies are kind of like that, that they have Messiah's coming. And they put these things together, and and when you look down the prophecy, it can look like the sites are just lined up right on top of each other, and it doesn't seem like there's any distance between them. It doesn't even seem like there are more than one coming. But when you get to the first coming, and Jesus starts to do the things that he does, and doesn't do other things, and now in hindsight, after 2,000 years, you put the gun on the wall, and you look at these prophecies, and you go, wait a minute, there's quite a distance between these actions of the Messiah. And you can start to see that, okay, when you are the prophet, you know what the Messiah is going to do. Uh, you know that he's going to do these things, but you don't necessarily know the times and the kind of time that this is going to happen in. That's exactly what First Peter says, by the way. First Peter 1. First um, Peter 1, verse 10 says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news. Those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Sometimes people misread this passage to say that the prophets didn't know what they were writing about. They were just kind of like writing stuff down. They were like being possessed by God. And they're just like, I have no idea what this is saying. And we only know it in hindsight. That's a wrong way to understand this because he's saying they actually didn't know a lot, but they couldn't piece together like the timing aspect of it. So notice they even have the right order. They understood the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They knew the order. They knew that Messiah had to suffer first and then glory. And so they knew these things. They knew what they were writing about. But what they struggled with with was the time and the kinds of time that this would happen. And one thing that was not as clear in the Old Testament was that Messiah comes two times. This is where, like, there's actually confusion about John the Baptist as well and his relationship to Elijah. They're like, wait, I thought Elijah comes. And he's like... Elijah has come if you receive him and because there's actually like two comings of Elijah. There's the first coming of Elijah to prepare the way as a forerunner in the first coming. And there's going to be another like Elijah like figure who comes again before the second coming. And so you, you start to see the clarity after the fact 
uh, on these different things. And so when you read some of these Old Testament prophecies, you realize that they are smashing them together, these things that are really uh, separated by quite a distance. And so that's, what, that's what's um, causing John some consternation here, how it all fits together. And let me just give you one example of this. Um, in Zechariah 9, Zechariah 9, verse 9, we read this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And so you go, all right, there, yeah, that's easy. That's first coming. When did that happen? Yeah, that's the triumphal entry. Then verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. He, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And he goes on from there. But you go, that didn't seem to happen. I mean, you can get all spiritualized on it. And, and, but when you look at like, what was Solomon's kingdom? Physical kingdom. You know, it was like very earthy. And so it was, see, you know, kind of sea to sea language. That's, that's used in Messiah's that's like That's like real geography. So you're like, that didn't happen. In the, first, in the first coming. So that's second coming. But notice they're smashed together. And so this is what John is struggling with. How do these fit together? And so he sends to Jesus. He sends to Jesus. And here he gets confirmation. Look at verse 20. Verse 20. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And so they relay his question perfectly. Notice what it says in verse 21. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. It's like these guys show up and they're like, are you the Messiah? And Jesus is like, all right, it's the hour of power. <laughs> and, uh, and so he just starts healing everyone and doing all kinds of stuff. And, and they're witnessing it. I mean, this is what John sent. He sent two witnesses and Jesus starts just doing a ton of miracles and then he doesn't just show them, he doesn't just show signs, but then he gives them scripture, verse 22. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So he begins to speak these, it's like, the, it's like the messianic checklist. You know, John has the checklist and he's, he's, he's saying, all right, lepers cleanse, check. Blind receive sight, check. Gospel preached to the poor, check. And he's like checking them all off. He's, so the disciples have seen these things, but now he's telling them, hey. Uh, and what you have to appreciate is what Jesus is saying all comes from Isaiah. All comes from Isaiah. And Isaiah is like, I mean, it's so significant. It is so good. It, it is so important. It's like, you know, airports are like hubs, right? Uh, like Atlanta airport is a hub. And, and you, it's like everyone's got to travel through Atlanta, wherever you're going to go. And Isaiah is like a hub in the Old Testament. You have all these different books that are building these theologies. And then Isaiah becomes like Atlanta airport. It's like everything passes. All this theology passes through Isaiah. And, and so Isaiah is showing us, here's where the future's headed. Here's all these realities that are going to come about. And so it tells us about the messianic age and what's going to happen. And, and so what Jesus is doing is he's taking things from Isaiah, 
of what will characterize the messianic age. And he's saying, I'm doing all those. I'm doing all those things. One of the passages he's looking at is uh, quoting from or alluding to is Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35. And um, you, you can even hear in, in some of this the very principle we were pointing out about how some of these things have not yet taken place. So if you even just start in verse one, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God. There's kind of lifting of the curse on the ground. And verse three, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. And then here, verse four, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Now, John reads something like that and he's like, yeah, where is that? But then verse five, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And so he, he goes on to talk about other effects upon the creation. So you see, Jesus, he's, he's quoting a passage that doesn't expressly talk about the Messiah, but it talks about conditions in the Messianic era. And so really what Jesus is doing is saying, do you see these conditions happening? Yes. So you can know that the Messiah is here because these are the kind of things the Messiah does. Uh, Isaiah 61 is another passage he's alluding to. Isaiah 61 says, verse one and two, the spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. John's like, yeah, where's that? (laughs) Uh, To proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor. And listen to this, and the day of vengeance of our God. And so when Jesus quotes this passage in Nazareth, in Luke chapter four, he doesn't quote the part about the day of the vengeance of our God. So clearly Jesus has an understanding that some of these things bring fulfillment now and some await a later time. And so what he's really saying is, hey, I'm giving you previews of the kingdom. And so that identifies me as the Messiah. He meets the messianic checklist. And so then he gives this final encouragement to John in verse 23, the choice that needs to be made. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This reminds us of the sermon on the plain and and this blessing that's similar to that. That is not tripped up by me. It's not scandalized by me. Blessed is that one who trusts in the Messiah. This is related to that, that idea in the, in the Old Testament and the New about the, the cornerstone that's set up, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And blessed are those who take refuge in him. Don't let him be an offense to you, John. And so this is the message he sends back to John. This is the perplexity at the role of Jesus. And so you have to love the way Jesus handles this. He doesn't like rebuke John. He he gives him confirmation. What you also have to appreciate is later when the religious leaders will ask Jesus for a sign, give us a sign that we know who you are. He won't do it. He won't give them a sign. Here, 
He gives a flurry of signs for John and confirmation from the scriptures. Why? Well, because this is far different than what they're asking for. They're in unbelief. And it doesn't matter what signs Jesus does for them because they're hardened. But John, he needs some assurance, some reassurance. And Jesus is quick to give that to him. There's a great message for us here that you too may have perplexities about the way Jesus works at times in your life. Too fast, too slow, too much suffering all at once, too many trials, justice not happening quick enough. So many different ways that we can say, Lord, why is it happening like this? But notice implicit in this passage is the cure for doubts. You have the cause of his doubts, which are unmet expectations. Ladies, you know about that, right? Uh, and um, it is unmet expectations and his, and his present experience of suffering. And the cure for these doubts, Jesus gives him, is scripture. He says, look what the scriptures have said. Remember what the scriptures have said. And so the scripture blows away the fog of doubt. The clarity of scripture brings confidence and clears away doubt. What Jesus is doing is giving him clarity. John, this is what Messiah does. Now, he doesn't answer all of his questions at this moment, but he does give him confirmation, the confirmation he's looking for. And John has to continue to trust in in how the plan will work itself out. So this is the perplexity, the role of Jesus. Notice secondly, how he then directs his attention to the crowd and speaks about John. And we see here the privilege of those related to Jesus, the privilege of those related to Jesus. He defends him here. And and here's this great lesson about how we might deal with others who are having doubts, that we would deal gently with them like Jesus does with John, but also the loyal defense that he has of one of his own instead of tearing John down. We can learn much from this. Now, the questions Jesus asks here are rhetorical questions that have an expected negative answer. Notice what he says. Uh, when John's disciples had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, middle of verse 24. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? And so now he's going to give these rhetorical questions. A reed shaken by the wind? Like, is that what you went out to see? And the answer is like, no, everyone knows. That's not what they went out for. And you think, a reed shaken by the wind. These are maybe, they can grow up to like six feet tall. They're very flimsy. Egypt is described as a reed that Israel is trying to depend upon uh, and not depend upon Yahweh in the Old Testament. And uh, it's not going to work out for them. They are an unstable uh, place to depend upon. Uh, they're, they're shaky. They're, they're fickle is the idea. Unreliable. And that's the Old Testament conception of a reed. The idea is, hey, John... You didn't go out to see a weak and flimsy preacher without any convictions who's just puts his finger up in the air to see which way the winds of public opinion are blowing and then talk like that. No, John didn't care at all about public opinion. John uh, spoke out against Herod and his immoral relationship and got put in prison for it. I mean, this was not a spineless preacher. This guy was courageous, full of conviction. That's not what you went out to see. And then he says, did you go out to see, uh, verse 25, what, what then did you go out to see? If not that, did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? <laughs> and you go, what? <laughs> he says, behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. Now, it would be hard to prove this without a shadow of a doubt, but 
it may be that Jesus is taking a subtle swipe at Herod, who is in a king's court, who is dressed in soft clothing, and who is the one who is in prison, John. He's saying, no, you didn't go out to see preachers and sneakers. <laughs> you, you, you went out to see not someone who was spineless, not someone who didn't have any authority. You think, what kind of clothes did John wear? The most uncomfortable clothes, you know, camel skin and, uh, and, and leather, and he's eating wild honey and locusts. And you think, why does he do this? Well, he's, too, he's identifying with Elijah. Remember, like, where Elijah was last seen? In the Old Testament, uh, Elisha, his disciples, walking with him, and they're going about, they, they cross over the Jordan, and uh, Elisha's trying to keep up with Elijah because he wants to see him go and depart. And what ends up happening is Elijah is taken up in a chariot by the Lord. He and Enoch are the only ones not to die in the Bible. Uh, and so he's taken up and it, his mantle falls and Elisha takes it. And the followers of Elijah, they want to put out a search party. They want to look for him. They're like, let's go look in the mountains for him. And so you can imagine they're putting up signs like a lost cat in the neighborhood, you know, uh, lost prophet, last seen by the Jordan, wearing these clothes, you know, kind of thing. And wouldn't you know it, here comes John in the wilderness by the Jordan, wearing these clothes. Maybe those signs are all, you know, distressed now. And they're like, wait a minute, it's Elijah. No, it's not actually Elijah in the flesh, but it's one who has an Elijah-like ministry. And so this is why he's identifying this way. He's coming to show that he is the prophet who would prepare the way for the Messiah. He was not a compromiser and he was not a celebrity. This is not what the people went out to see. And so if not for those reasons, what did you guys go out to see him for? I mean, this was a trick. This was like a long way out of your way. You didn't go there for the landscape. You didn't go there to see some spineless preacher. No, you went because he was a prophet. Verse 26, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. In a number of places in the rest of the New Testament, you will see that Jesus is saying, or Luke or the gospel writer is making an editorial comment saying they regarded John as a prophet. Remember when Jesus asked the, the religious leaders, hey, uh, where did the authority come from John's ministry? You know, was it from heaven or from man? And, and they're like, they don't want to answer because it says they were, the people regarded John as a prophet. And so they, they knew that John was a prophet. That's why they went out there. And they've been waiting and waiting for so many years for a word from the Lord, 400 years of silence. And then verse 27, this is whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. This is a quote from Malachi chapter three, verse one. And, and it prophesies that there will be one who will come before Yahweh to prepare his way. Now, just as a side note, what's, what's fascinating about this is that in Malachi three, the forerunner prepares the way for Yahweh, for God. But in the New Testament, John the Baptist, the forerunner prepares the way for who? Jesus, which means that Jesus is Yahweh, right? Jesus is God. That's the, that's the point that you're meant to make. That's the connection that the writers want you to make. So John does not care much about ministry uh, methodology. <laughs> he, he doesn't, oh, if we can just get the right location and wear the right clothes and attract people. He, uh, that, that is not his mentality. 
He goes in the place where nobody would go, but they go out to see him nevertheless. And here's, a, here's just a great lesson for us. Ministry is not about style. It's not about location. It's about the truth. It's about conviction that the word of God is really true. People don't come necessarily for convenience, but for content, at least those who really are seeking the Lord. John does not make it convenient to come to him, but he does have the content. And so that's what they went out to hear from John. He was a man of conviction. He was a man of clarity. And this is the question Jesus is raising. So if John was reliable, and if he spoke with authority, and if he was the fulfillment of prophecy, why are you not all listening to him? Why do you not listen to him? Then he says in verse 27, or sorry, verse 28, he makes this incredible comment about John. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. What a shocking statement. How many people have been born of women? Yeah, everybody, right? Save Adam. Uh, Everyone's been born of women. So this is his way to say, hey, uh, Everyone, compared to everyone, nobody is greater than John. What is he saying here? Noah, Moses, Daniel, David? Why is John considered the goat, (laughs) the greatest of all time? One writer said, because he has a unique and unrepeatable role. It's not something in John's essence that makes him the greatest. It's something in his function that makes him the greatest. Because his greatness is tied to the greatness of the one he introduces. The world history has been waiting for the one the, the, who can bring creation back to Eden. And now John has the privilege of saying, there he is. Listen to him. And so he has this incredible function of pointing to the Messiah. You might say it like this, that in God's estimation, greatness is evaluated based upon how your life points to Jesus. And John's got to point people to Jesus in a profound way. But if that statement is not enough, the next statement is is even more profound. He says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So we've been pointing out that the kingdom of God concept is something that is a future that Jesus brings upon the earth, future from our perspective. His boots on the ground, the Messiah is here on the earth. He's reigning from the earth when it happens. And so he's saying the least in that kingdom are greater than John. We might say if we keep the parallel, the function of John is what made him great because he got to announce the Messiah. The function of the least in the kingdom is greater than what John got to do. And so there is some debate here as to like, is, is John, is uh, Jesus saying any believer after the crucifixion and resurrection is greater than John because they have more revelation, because they're in the new covenant, uh, because they have the indwelling Holy Spirit as a result of that. And that's what makes them greater than John. Or is it the idea that when the, the kingdom comes in its fullness and that when Jesus returns again, establishes his kingdom, that the fact that believers will rule with Christ over the earth, that they will judge angels, whatever that means in first first Corinthians six, that they will uh, have this dominion over the creation and have this unique role 
That that is the idea, that even the least will have a greater function as John. I lean in that direction, but I think it's absolutely true that the idea is there is such privilege in living on the other side of the cross than John had, right? The connecting the dots was more difficult. We look back and go, oh yeah, this makes total sense. First coming, there's that. Second coming, we're waiting for these. And and so we have so much more clarity. We do have the new covenant ministry. We do have the uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And, and so we, we have this special, unique privilege in this time, even the least. And yet in the fullness of the kingdom in the future, everyone's role and function will be so much greater than what John got to do. And so he, he, here's this incredible statement that, that Jesus makes. Well, how do you get into this future kingdom? Verse 29 shows you. And there's some debate, did Jesus say this or is this Luke's editorial comment? It doesn't really matter that much, but that's why the ESV puts it in parentheses. They believe it's Luke's editorial comment. It says, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. Like declared God just? The idea is that they, they showed that God was right. Uh, in the message and what he was saying. And they showed that by being baptized by John um, in his baptism. And so they were saying, this is right. This is true. What John is saying is absolutely right. God is is right here. And so we're going to show that by being baptized by John. Verse 30, but the Pharisees and the lawyers, the lawyers there are the experts in the law. They like studied their entire lives to interpret the law of Moses. And they are the experts. They rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. This is ironic because those who were the least likely, the tax collectors and just the general populace, they hear the message and they go, yeah, he's the Messiah. We got to follow him. And so the preparation for the Messiah is baptism by John. So we're going to do that. Whereas those who are the experts in the law, they've got their face in the book all the time. They refuse to accept John's baptism. They reject. And so this is the dividing line that John brings. This is the choice to be made in light of John's ministry. Some received, some rejected. The point about the greatness of the kingdom revolves around the greatness of Jesus here. John is great because of what he got to do in pointing people to Jesus. And the least in the kingdom are great because they share in Jesus's reign as king and the privileges that he brings as well. And so there is this difference between those who respond and those who reject. And those who respond have incredible privileges to be a part of Jesus's coming kingdom. Finally, in this last point, we see the perversity of those rejecting Jesus. He, he really ends this second section by talking about how these religious leaders, they do not receive the message of John or the message of Jesus. And you think, well, what other message is there, right? There's no, the apostles haven't been sent out yet. They're still trying to piece the dots together. So the only ones speaking this message are John and Jesus. Like, that's it. And so if you reject John and Jesus, you've rejected everything. So here we see the perversity of those rejecting Jesus in verses 31 to 35. And Jesus begins to compare this generation, this this present generation. And he uses this this kind of silly illustration 
of children. You are a childish generation. Verse 31, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. So, so think, you know, the mom takes them to the grocery store, but don't think of like, you know, Food Lion or Sam's or anything like that. This is like a public marketplace. And so I'm not saying there's a playground in the middle here, but it's like this is where the kids would go and they would kind of mess around and play with the other kids and the moms would shop and, and get what they needed for the day. And so the kids are there. They're all kind of huddled up. They're playing. They're, what, what game do you want to play? What should we play? And that's the scene, right? That's the scene that Jesus is portraying. And, you know, kids like to pretend to be adults and pretend to play the games. You know, I'm a pastor, so my kids in the pool want to pretend to play baptism, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and dunk each other. And so uh, that, that's the idea here. And so they pick out two really significant events in, uh, in, in life. And weddings and funerals is, in essence, what they're saying. So they're like children in the marketplace calling to one another. And here's what they say. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. What is that? that? That's a wedding, right? We sang a dirge and you did not weep. So here's Jesus saying, you can't please these kids. You can't please these people. They say, Let, let's play. What should we play? What game should we play? Oh, I want to play wedding. I want to play wedding. Oh, I want to be the groom. I want to be the bride. I want to be the, the, the pastor. Uh, I want to be the flower girl. I want to be the ring bearer. And they kind of divvy up all the things. And then some kids like, I don't want to play wedding. I don't want to play wedding. And they're like, okay. Johnny doesn't want to play wedding. So they're like, all right, um, okay, let's play funeral. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to be the dead guy. You know, it's like, uh, I want to be uh, the pallbearer. Uh, I want to be the minister. You know, it's like, I want to be, you know, whatever. And, and you, they, they set it up again and they go, I don't want to play funeral. I wanted to play wedding. And you're like, what? And so that's the, what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you cannot please this present generation. But now notice how he connects it to John's ministry and Jesus's ministry. Verse 33, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. So which one is John here? Is John the wedding or the funeral? John's ministry is like the funeral, right? It's dour. It's like out in the wilderness. It's, it's you know, he's, he doesn't eat bread. He's not drinking wine. It's not celebrating. It's dour. And, and he's saying, John is like the funeral style of ministry. And you guys go, no, we don't want to listen to that. He, how can we explain John's ministry? Maybe he's like the Gerizim demoniac and he's crazy. He's out in the wilderness. He's, you know, maybe he has a demon. Maybe that's why he's acting so strange. And then notice verse 34, the son of man, on the other hand, has come eating and drinking. So Jesus is doing the things you would do at a wedding. So Jesus' ministry is like the wedding. And actually Jesus does compare his ministry to a wedding. And John is like the bridegroom who prepares the way. And they say, here's how they respond to Jesus' ministry. Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so the point is, Jesus is saying, hey, John and I have different styles of ministry. John's ministry is seclusion. He goes to the place where no one goes, the wilderness. My ministry is at the crossroads of trade and travel in Capernaum and in Galilee. And and we have different styles, but our message is the same. Our message is exactly the same, but our style is different. And you look at the style 
and you're not happy with it. You want a different style. But notice how ridiculous their objection is, how ridiculous unbelief is, because on the one hand, they say, we don't like John's ministry. We don't want it like that. And then you're like, all right, well, what about this kind of ministry? You're like, well, we don't want that either. <laughs> so you cannot please these people. One writer said, John is too weird. Jesus is too wild. No matter how God speaks to this people, unbelief is not satisfied. Contrary to what we often presume, unbelief is not thoughtful and rational, but twisted and perverse. And so here's the difference. This is the, what someone called the Goldilocks church, right? The Goldilocks church. Uh, sadly, some people are like this with church, right? It's just like, um, no one greeted me here. It's like, too many people greeted me here. <laughs> it's like um, the preacher didn't preach long enough. He preached too long. I, I don't think we're ever going to get the, the former but here. But, um, but there's just all kinds of things. You know, they're too small. Oh, they've gotten too big. You know, it's like you just cannot win if you have the Goldilocks church mentality. And that's how they're being with Jesus and John's ministry. And you can think about this today, even in our culture. If Christians... Uh, don't get involved enough in the society and the culture at large, then they say like, oh, Christians don't even care. They, you know, they're, they're worthless. They, they're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. But then when Christians start to get involved and they start to bring their worldview and their beliefs and they let those worldview and beliefs impact what they, what they see in the world and how they think the world should be, then they're like, you Christians want to legislate all these things. You want, to, you want to impose your morality upon us. And you're like, wait a minute. How can we win? We can't win. If we don't, you know, if we're not more involved, then you get mad at us. If we're too involved because we bring our beliefs, you get mad at us. It's like, that's the situation here that Jesus is dealing with. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says. Their pretended objections were often, or, or wore only a cloak to cover over their hatred of God's truth. We must make up our minds to find unconverted people as perverse, unreasonable, and hard to please as the Jews of our Lord's time. We must give up the vain idea of trying to please everybody. The thing is impossible, and the attempt is mere, a mere waste of time. We must be content to walk in Christ's steps and let the world say what it likes. Do what we will. We shall never satisfy it or silence its ill-natured remarks. It first found fault with John the Baptist and then with our blessed maker or blessed master. And it will go on caviling and finding fault with the, that master's disciples so long as one of them is left upon earth. Sometimes I think, you know, I share the gospel with someone and I'm like, oh, I wish I'd said this. I wish I'd gone to this passage. Oh, man, I wish I just, oh, why didn't I think to say that, you know, and, uh, and you kind of just beat yourself up. Uh, do you think you could, have pre you could present the gospel as good as John the Baptist or Jesus Right? Probably not. Okay. Uh, and yet here they are and they're being rejected and they've got it down. I mean, so yes, we want to be as accurate as we can be. And, and that's faithfulness. But we also remember that God has to do a great work. He has to open the heart. And so I think this can just give us rest at night. We can go, you know, I wish I'd said that. Maybe I'll have an opportunity to say that, that thing later. But it's not really me that makes the difference. It's not my style and, uh, you know, how much I got to say it or not. God can use, I mean, especially when you hear some people's testimonies and you're like, yeah, this is what I heard. And, and God convicted me and, and I just repented. And you're like, from that? You know what? <laughs> uh, so God can, can use even the most feeble attempts at bringing Christ to people through the message. 
Finally, we hear wisdom's children. We listen to wisdom's children. These children are unreasonable that Jesus is talking about. And look at verse 35. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And the point being here is, look at the fruits. Look at the fruits. Look at the children of John and Jesus and their ministry. They, they show the change of life. They, cha- they show the effectiveness and the truth of the message as they are transformed. John MacArthur writes this in his commentary. He says, in every generation, you have follies, brats, and wisdom's children. And that's what Jesus is saying. Hey, just look at the fruit. Look at you guys. Look at your children and look at my children and look at the difference. We learn here that even the greatest have their moments of perplexity and doubt. We learn that the first and best thing to do is to take your doubts to Jesus and his word to remind yourself of the truth or have someone who's skilled in the scriptures to come alongside you and help you work through those doubts. We learn that there is incredible privilege for those rightly related to Jesus and his kingdom. We learn that doubt is certainly different than unbelief. And it's just a good reminder for us of the humility of John that sometimes we can be so proud. We don't ever want to express, we would never say what we're having doubts about or, or we can't figure out and we're like, oh, I, can't, I can't ask that question to someone. You know, they're going to think I'm, I'm dumb or they're going to think I'm like, I've never read the Bible, but you know, I don't know how this works out. And it's like, here's John the Baptist. who's going, hey, uh, can you help me out here? Uh, are you the Messiah? <laughs> like, and he's humble enough to ask the question. And I think we ought to be following that example too. And we don't know stuff. We should just ask and not feel embarrassed about like, uh, man, what are people going to think if I ask this question? It's like, We'll just ask. You know, no one knew the answer until they asked at some point. We all have to learn. So we want to end where we began. The most important of questions, is Jesus the Messiah? We saw in the beginning the signs of the Messiah testify that he is. We saw that the scriptures Jesus quoted testify that he is the Messiah. We saw that the servant John who came and was a fulfillment of scripture himself and preparing the way for the Messiah, he confirmed that Jesus was the Messiah. And then we see that those who are saved and who respond to this message, they are wisdom's children, and they too testify that he is the Messiah. And so here we see, as Luke is portraying for us, who is this man? Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. He is the one who is to come, the one who has come and is coming again. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for its truthfulness, for its assurance to our hearts for the way that you are able to bring comfort to us, to answer our questions. And Lord, we thank you for just the example of John the Baptist and even even he struggling in this way and bringing his questions to Jesus and finding answers from the clarity of Scripture. And, And Lord, we're thankful for the privileges you give to us in your kingdom. We thank you for bringing us to know you. We pray for any who may not know you, that you would grant them the eyes to see and ears to hear that the Messiah brings with his coming. He brings people who cannot see and cannot hear to spiritual and physical sight. And one day also in his kingdom, physical sight and hearing. Um, Lord, we pray that you would um, minister to us this word this week um, and comfort us through the assurance that Jesus is the one to restore all things. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, let's respond. 281, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. 281. Please stand if you are able.